Have you ever seen that sort of scene in a movie or perhaps a cartoon where someone is struggling to know what to do? They've got this really big choice to make and suddenly you get this sort of little puff of smoke and these two little people appear on either of their shoulders. And you go into this scene where you've got two voices, one saying one thing in one ear and the other saying another thing different in the other ear and each one is trying to convince the person on what to do within the situation. Now, if you've ever seen that sort of thing in a movie, that is not a bad picture to have in your mind for what is going on in today's section of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 36 is all about two competing voices, each one telling Judah what to do, and Judah has to decide which way they're going to jump. They've got to figure out which voice they're going to follow. In many ways, what Judah is going through is exactly what you and I go through every week. Every week, we have lots and lots of different voices in this world telling us what to do. Isaiah wants us to realise that there is only ever one voice that is worth listening to. But before we get to that, let's firstly look at today's passage and think about these two different voices that are trying to persuade Judah. Voice number one, this is God's voice, which within the chapter alone, it is perhaps the less obvious of the voices, but it's definitely there, especially when we step back and appreciate the opening scene of this chapter against the broader flow of the entire book. Verse one, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lagish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. The chapter opens with a very ominous scene from Judah's perspective. Like an unstoppable juggernaut, the Assyrian Empire has swept down through the northern nations down through the northern tribes of Israel. They have surged across the Judean border and they have crushed everything before them. Verse 1 mentions that they have captured all the fortified cities of Judah. Verse 2 mentions that the city of Lagish in particular. That's because Lagish was a fortified city only about 40 k's from Jerusalem. It was famous for being an impregnable stronghold. And even it has fallen to Assyria. In fact, excavations have revealed that a fire so fierce destroyed this city that the debris formed a layer of ash about a metre thick. Lagish, which was one of the showpieces of Judah's defences, one of her last lines of defence, Lagish had not just been defeated, it was obliterated. And we are told very precisely in verse 2 that the Assyrian field commander stops at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. That is a very intimidating place to stop. So imagine the scene. You are there huddled behind the wall in Jerusalem. And out there is the field commander 
of the then invincible Assyrian army. And behind him is a massive show of force. Chariots, foot soldiers, horses, archers, catapults, battering rams, in their thousands. And there he stands, arms folded, one foot on your city's water supply. In verse 12, he will speak of Jerusalem having to drink their own urine. It's not an idle threat. And yet within the context of the entire book, there is a lot more going on here than meets the eye. For starters, there is a jarringly change in style with this chapter. See, I don't know whether you noticed it, but up until, ever since we've rejoined Isaiah last month, it's all been poetry. Have you noticed that? It's been rhymes, it's been rhythms, it's been songs, it's been figurative language. But suddenly you've got a radical shift in gear where you enter into very precise historical account with exact dates and exact places. That is very different from what we've been reading. It's very different from most of the rest of the book. In fact, you've got to go all the way back to chapter 7 before you hit anything similar to this level of historical narrative. And what's really interesting is if you go all the way back to chapter 7, that is exactly the chapter which explains why it is that Assyria is here on Jerusalem's doorstep in the first place. You may not remember it because it was back in February that we looked at chapter 7, but back there, Judah's king at the time, King Ahaz, he was feeling threatened by the northern tribes of Israel, so he went to Assyria for help. He ignored God's offer for help and he went to Assyria instead. And that was such an insulting rejection of God that God said as judgment he was going to bring Assyria not to protect them but to punish them. Wasn't all bad? God went on to say that he wasn't going to destroy Judah only punish them. A remnant would survive. In fact, more than that, in the intervening chapters, God's been saying that he'd make sure a remnant would survive because he was going to protect the city of Jerusalem. In fact, even more than that, last week especially, God said that when Assyria comes knocking on the door of Jerusalem, don't run off to Egypt for help. If they return to him, he will sensationally protect them. Do you remember that last week? God said if they return to him, he will shield Jerusalem and miraculously defeat Assyria with a sword that, not, that is not of man. Now, friends, that is all swirling around in the background of today's chapter. The effect is lost a little bit on us because we've been reading Isaiah in chunks spread over weeks and months. But if you'd been continuously reading it without a break, the effect is very pronounced. As by deliberately changing the style of writing, Isaiah is jogging our memory all the way back to chapter 7, back to how it all started, back to show us that this invasion by Assyria is exactly what God said would happen. Nothing surprising here. Which I think explains why here in chapter six, 36, <clears throat> instead of a chapter all about a massive war that erupts between two armies, what we first get in this chapter is a war of words. In fact, the actual battle that happens, if you can call it a battle, but the actual battle with the Assyrian army, that won't get described till the end of chapter two, to the end of the next chapter, 
And it's going to occupy a whole two verses. But before we get to that, you've got all this attention being given to this war of words. Because Isaiah wants us to see that that's where the real action is. The bottom line of what is going on here is that we have two competing voices, each telling Judah what to do. Voice one, that's God. And he's been talking for 35 chapters now. And through his prophet Isaiah, God has been telling them that this invasion of Assyria has been coming. And he's told them why it's coming. It's judgment. And he's been telling them what to do once it arrives. He's been telling them to keep trusting me. Hold your nerve. Rely on my help. I will protect you. But voice number two is about to step up to the microphone. And after 35 chapters of listening to the messenger from the king of kings, another messenger from another king is about to speak. Verse four. The field commander said to them, tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? This commander, if nothing, is, not, is, is nothing if not perceptive. With one sentence, the guy totally nails the issue at stake. What are you basing this confidence of yours on? Effectively, who are you going to trust in this situation? Look around. I have a massive army, undefeated. Whose help are you going to depend on? He runs through three basic options and explains why each one is doomed to fail. Firstly, in verse 5, he mentions their military strength and strategy. In other words, are they going to trust in their own abilities? Hardly convincing given the circumstances. Assyrian records record that from this period that so far 46 fortified walled cities have fallen in, in Judah. Only Jerusalem remains. Why on earth do they think that that city is going to be different from the other 46? In verse 6, the commander offers a second option for confidence, perhaps an alliance with Egypt, which we know from previous chapters that's something Judah has been pursuing. The commander is scathing in his mockery. In verse 6, he describes Egypt as a splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. It's a great line. Egypt, they're a bunch of wannabes. If you rely on them, you will only hurt yourself more. All of which leaves a third and final alternative. Verse 7. And if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? Now, I've got to admit, I love this guy. He has clearly done his homework. He knew all about their deal with Egypt, which he's just laughed off. And now with this reference to Hezekiah removing high places so as to make people worship at the temple in Jerusalem, that is a very clever distortion of facts. 
Because getting people to worship at the Jerusalem uh, temple was actually the right thing to do. That's what the Old Testament law uh, specified. But this commander is implying that Yahweh must be a pretty pathetic sort of God. That if your pipsqueak king can simply shut down places of worship, imagine what my king, the mighty king of Assyria, is going to be able to do. He's going to be able to tear this temple limb from limb. Verse 8. Come now. Make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How then can you... Repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you're depending on Egypt for uh, chariots uh, and horsemen. Oh, this guy's good. He's just rubbished all their options. He now offers them a deal. Why put yourself through all this pain? You're not going to win. Look around. You don't have the numbers. Just surrender. Everyone will win that way. And besides, he says, and here's the trump card. Here is a beauty that he saves up till last. It's God himself who's sending me. Verse 10. Have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. That's genius. This guy ought to be in advertising. Notice that the Lord is in capitals. The commander is using the personal name of God himself, Yahweh, which the Jews themselves would not utter out loud. The guy is implying perhaps even a level of friendship. Yahweh himself told me to march against you. Which at one level is exactly right. This guy has read enough of Isaiah to know that Yahweh has in fact sent Assyria to be used as his instrument to punish Judah. He's just conveniently neglected to mention the bit about uh, Yahweh protecting Jerusalem. Oh, and he forgot to mention the bit in chapter 10 about God's judgment was also going to fall on Assyria because she was so arrogant. But you've got to admit, the guy's good. He's a master of spin. In fact, it's a measure of how persuasive he is that by the time you get to verse 11, the Jerusalem palace staff interrupt him, ask him to start speaking uh, uh, in Aramaic rather than Hebrew. That's because at the time Aramaic was the language of choice for diplomacy. But they're not interested in protocol. They just don't want Joe Average from Jerusalem listening to all this stuff because it's so convincing. The commander's not fooled. He realises he's got a foot in the door at the moment. And so he resumes his speech in verse 13, making sure that he's speaking in Hebrew, and now he directly addresses the bystanders huddled behind the wall in Jerusalem. And this time the kid guards come off, and he directly questions Hezekiah's ability to protect the people. Verse 14, do not listen to Hezekiah, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. Verse 15, do not let Hezekiah persuade you. Verse 16, do not listen to Hezekiah. Verse 18, do not let Hezekiah mislead you. The commander is just pounding away. Face facts, guys. Look at the track record. Assyria is going to defeat you. Stop listening to all these lies from Hezekiah about the Lord. None of the other gods save their nations. 
What makes you think your God's going to save you? Verse 20. Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? This speech has everything. Rational sounding argument, clever half-truths, sly little innuendos. And here at the end, after sensing that he's got a real foot in the door, here is a direct assault against God's ability to be able to do anything about it. You cannot read this speech and not hear echoes of that serpent in the garden in Genesis. This speech has the smell of sulphur all over it, which is exactly why it's so compelling. You don't think the evil one knows what buttons to press in us? And so the curtain closes at the end of the chapter with the ball firmly in King Hezekiah's court. Whose voice is he going to listen to here? God's? Who for 35 chapters has been saying that this moment with Assyria was coming and that when it does arrive, Hezekiah, trust me for protection. And yet you look out on this massive army that have been unstoppable. And that commander, he's pretty convincing. Which voice? Well, next week we'll discover which voice Hezekiah listens to. But as readers of Isaiah, we, of course, already know which one he should listen to. Two weeks ago in chapter 28, God said straight up, Listen and hear my voice. Pay attention and hear what I say. Clearly, it is God who Hezekiah needs to go with here. But it is the genius of the way this chapter is put together, the way it's all teased out, the the length of the speech, the craftiness of the commander's uh, speech, the way it finishes with everything up in the air. This chapter is deliberately drawing us into the drama so as to get us to reflect on what are the voices that we're listening to. Because this week, when you step out into the world, there will be literally hundreds of them telling you what to do. And Isaiah wants us to realise that there is, in fact, only one voice that is worth listening to. It's God's. And friends, for us, as followers of Jesus, this side of the cross, we don't just have Isaiah to tell us that. In John's Gospel, chapter 10, Jesus himself puts it this way to his disciples. Maybe you've heard the words before. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I know my sheep and my sheep follow me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Verse 
That is a very powerful image of Jesus being a shepherd so committed to his sheep's best interest that he will even lay down his life for them, which is exactly what Jesus did at the cross, isn't it? So that we might be forgiven, so that we might be restored to new life. Jesus laid down his life for us. And Jesus' sheep know that, and so they listen to his voice, and they do what he says. Because when Jesus says something, we know he says it not to make his life any easier. He's saying it because it's what's best for us. He's the good shepherd. And even if there are other voices out there as persuasive as this commander's, Jesus' sheep listen to his voice. That's a good reminder. Because when you step out into the week, there will be hundreds of voices. Let me suggest what a couple of them will be. And I'd be guessing that one of them will be the voice of peer pressure. This is a voice that is perhaps louder the younger you are, but it never leaves us. This is the voice that says to keep your heads down so as to fit in and be popular, so that you won't make waves in the family amongst your friends. This is the voice that says don't be so over the top about Jesus that you actually draw attention to yourself. This is, the friend, this is the voice that says don't be friends with that lonely, awkward person at school or at work because others might think that you're awkward by association. This is the voice that tells you to join in when the conversation turns to gossip. Join in when the conversation gets a bit smutty. Join in so that you'll fit in. And this voice can be very convincing. You know, you need to fit in so as to be able to reach them for Jesus. And it's a voice that can lead you to be ashamed of Jesus. And the voice of peer pressure can lead you to not make a stand for Jesus. It's not God's voice. Another voice that's going to come at you this week is exactly the one that Al was talking about earlier, and this is the voice of advertising and media. This is the voice that's going to tell you that you need to look a certain way and you need to own certain things in order to be happy. Estimates are that if you add up the effects of television, internet, billboards and magazine, the average person views more than 3,000 ads a day. And we are kidding ourselves if we don't think that that affects us. And we need to be counterbalancing that by soaking up what God says. I mean, likewise, just regular TV shows and movies, they're constantly giving us a slant on life that is not God's. I mean, I have watched movies and been so swept up by the emotion of the storyline that I've actually caught myself wanting married couples to break up. Or I've caught myself cheering on some sort of hero who has bypassed the law and viciously hunting down and killing everyone who's ever wronged them. That's not God telling me to think that way. And we need to be thoughtful viewers and thoughtful readers and be aware when we're being pulled off the track by voices that aren't God's. But let me give you another voice, a final one, that I know that you're going to hear this week. I know you're going to hear it because you're listening to it now. 
mine. Some of you have been coming here for years and listening to my voice. Hope you got your Bibles open while you have been. Because whether it's me or Al or Wayne or Nugget or Ed or whether it's your favourite preacher from the, from the internet or on the telly or whether it's your favourite Christian author, I don't care who they are. Their words are only useful to the extent that they faithfully explain God's words. I hope you got your Bibles open. And I hope this isn't the only time of the week that you open them and that you're reading them regularly and seriously with your minds engaged because it would be very, very strange indeed to say and claim that you are listening to God and you're not actually be reading what he says. Friends, today's chapter is an important one in the context of the book of Isaiah. It is bringing us to a crunch time for King Hezekiah and for Judah. For 35 chapters now, God, through his messenger Isaiah, has been saying one thing. And now the king of Assyria, through his messenger, is saying another thing. And he is saying it really persuasively. Which voice will Hezekiah heed? On whose words will he base his confidence? On whom will he depend? They are good questions for all of us to think about this week. On whom will you depend? On whose words will you base your confidence? Whose voice are you going to heed? Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. And they listen to my voice. I'll pray. Father, give us the discipline and the courage and the clarity of mind to do the things that you say. Father, even when there are things this week that are pulling us in different directions and urging us to do things that we know from your word you don't want us to do and you don't want us to think, Father, please, as the the sheep of your pasture, help us to be people who do what you say, to have our confidence in your words. Amen.